Hey church, we want to thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast. As always, we hope that it is of benefit to you and your walk in Christ this week. The sermon was taught and recorded at our Warrington location by lead pastor Tony Colomb. As always, if you have questions, concerns, or prayer requests, you can always send those in to ccwarrantonnapa at gmail.com or give our office a call. We would love to hear from you. Thank you again for listening. Happy Palm Sunday. <laughs> Some of you have been around too long. <laughs> so like waiting for the corny jokes on Palm Sunday. Uh, I'm just going to let it hang. Uh, I would typically, if you've been around for a few years in the pre-COVID era, uh, you would know that I try to strongly encourage high fives today. And, uh, you know, for palms, I know, it's a terrible joke, slightly blasphemous. But uh, I'll leave that up to you if you want to give high fives. I've been giving fist bumps to people and occasionally a, a hearty handshake just because it's nice. It is nice. I've been missing that for a while. So, But I, I'm not going to tell you what to do. You can make that determination for yourself. So, But today in our text, we're going to be in Mark chapter 15, and we're going to be looking at the crucifixion today, since it's the Sunday before Easter. We will also have a Good Friday service this upcoming Friday at 7 p.m. here, where that will be the focus, but it'll be a little different. It's a different program, and, and so I really hope that you can make it to that, because it's a really special evening. It's definitely more somber. It's definitely more somber. We don't have children's programming on Friday night for Good Friday. It's kind of a, a funny time to think about doing that, so... If, if you're available uh, to come on Friday at 7, we would love to see you here. And then we'll have Easter services at 9 and 1045 next Sunday. Right after that, we're starting a brand new series in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, I don't know if you noticed, right by the communion out there, we have these cards, a basket of pens, and a whole lot of those old school spiral notebooks making you flash back to high school, junior high days. What I really wanted to do was to get some peaches. Does anybody remember peaches? Yes. So uh, now let me give some explanation before we get too far into this thing. And for those who are watching at home, if you can't come in physically to get one, let us know and we will get you one of these. But what we're going to ask you to do is we're going to challenge the church over the course of that entire series to pick up a new discipline, a new activity that we hope will help the scripture we're going to be preaching through get in your head a little more. And, and that discipline is going to be writing out scripture for the upcoming Sunday. So what you have here on this beautiful card that Corey put together is the title of our series, The Story of Two Kingdoms. The Gospel of Matthew focuses heavily on the kingdom of God. And we felt that the Holy Spirit was leading us to make that kind of an emphasis here at church. And so you'll find week one and all the weeks with little check boxes. So, for example, the Sunday after Easter, we're going to preach through Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 17. It's a genealogy. That's going to be fun. <laughs> so it's really important stuff. And, and it's one of those things that we just skip right over. We don't pay any attention to. There's lots of names we can't pronounce correctly, but we've got tools to help us figure that out. Either way. The whole point is, before our first week in the series, so two weeks out, before our first week in the series, sometime between Easter and the following Sunday, we're asking you to get that passage, Matthew 1, 1 through 17, and write it out. 
So open up your Bible, have your little check card so you have your reference. And what we, the spiral notebooks are there so you have something to write in if you don't have anything better. So you can grab one of those. We want to take away all of your excuses. Well, I don't have something to write in. That's for free. You can take one with you. And if you fill it up, we'll have more as we go throughout the year. You don't have to use that one. You can use something nicer if that's what you prefer. If you have bad arthritis or you can't grip or maybe some folks have a little bit of a shake, uh, I want to encourage you to type it out. I prefer the handwriting, but if you have to, type it out. The whole point is, instead of just reading and going on with your life, is that as you read, you're forced to think and, and put into action what you're reading. And when we do those types of things, we learn better. When we, you know, it's like, it's like somebody in the Bible wrote about this, right? Like there's this guy named James, and he even talked about what good is it if you read God's word and don't do anything about it? It's like looking in a mirror and not addressing the issue, right? It's that sort of idea, and it's really this basic concept that when we read through something or learn something, if we put it into practice quickly or put some motion behind that learning, we learn it deeper, it stays with us longer, and so we want to encourage you through this entire series to do that. On the back, you'll even find some helpful tips and reminders. And it's important because this is a long series, folks. We're going to be in this Gospel of Matthew for quite some time. So don't get discouraged or overwhelmed by the number of weeks. I really think over the course of this series, if you can somehow consistently put this into practice, you will become more like Jesus. I really do believe that. You will not be less of a person for spending more time in God's Word. I feel pretty confident in saying that. And if you find that to not be the case, you can have your money back guaranteed. All right? So <laughs> anyways, I'm really encouraged and really excited about this. And I hope that something you can, maybe you're not excited about writing, but I hope you're excited about God's Word. And I hope you're excited about becoming more like Jesus. And if that is the case for you, let me ask you to step out of your comfort zone a little bit and try this over the course of the next year together as we go through the Gospel of Matthew. I think it will be of great benefit. All right. All that to say, grab those on your way out if you'd like in preparation for after Easter. Let me go ahead and say a word of prayer, and we'll get into our passage today. Father, we thank you so much for today, and we thank you that we could be here together I thank you for those who are here and those who are watching online and those who have kept up with us in a variety of ways over this whole course of the things going on in the world. And Father, I just pray that in wherever we find ourselves listening to your word being taught, that it would not return void, that there would be something in us that grows and changes and transforms and becomes more like Jesus. And so, Father, I just pray that as we Take some time this morning to look at a very serious and sobering moment in history that our hearts would fall more in love with you as a result. So, Father, speak to all of us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the crucifixion is certainly something that a lot of people are familiar with. In fact, uh, even people outside of church are familiar with the picture of the crucifixion. Uh, the cross is everywhere. <laughs> even as art. I mean, we have it as art right here, you know. Uh, it's on the front of the church building. Random people who don't even really follow Jesus will get cross tattoos sometimes, or 
they'll be in jewelry form that's passed down from one family to another. And it's, a, it's an intense scene. A lot of us are familiar with that. No matter how many times that you've heard the story or the events of the crucifixion, every time I preach this, I just want to ask you to not sit there and allow that thought of, oh, I've heard this a hundred times before, or I'm super familiar with it, but I'll allow yourself to just kind of be in the words of Jesus and in God's word so that his Holy Spirit can speak to you, because this, in my opinion, is the most important moment in all of human history, where our debt was wholly paid by the blood of Jesus Christ. And there's nothing not a one of us did to earn that payment. There's nothing we did to earn our forgiveness. And sometimes it's really easy for me, and maybe I'm not alone, but sometimes it's easy for me to cheapen the grace of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished by my ongoing indulgence in my sinful desires. So maybe this can be a little bit of a reset moment, but we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verse 6 through 39, 16 through 39 today. And before we even get to that, I just want to mention that each gospel has a different perspective and a different reason for writing, and that's really important. A lot of people will harmonize, is what they call some of the gospels. That means bring them in alignment, so to speak, and match them up, particularly, like I've mentioned before, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They are the most similar word for word, and so it's really easy to put those three together and kind of get an idea of who's included what and when and where and all these things. There are books that harmonize, so you can buy a book that will list out all four Gospels and in chronological order kind of put the passages and things like that. One of my favorite commentaries on the life of Jesus is called The Chronological Life of Christ by Mark Moore, and he does that. And that's good and that's helpful, but it's not always best to harmonize all the Gospels because when you do that, you can start to take away a little bit of why that author is writing to who he was writing. Mark is one of those examples that quickly gets overlooked. Short, short gospel comparatively, but Mark is writing to Romans, and he's writing to Roman Christians. So it's a different perspective than the Jews. And in fact, you can see that right off the bat on the beginning of his gospel when he opens up, and he talks about this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is what he says. So the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Mark 1.1. And for most people nowadays, that doesn't really seem like that big of a deal. But if you were writing a letter to the Roman audience in that time, it is a huge deal that somebody would start their letter off by saying, this guy is the Son of God. Now, why would that be a big deal? Because it's a pretty weird claim. Until you understand the history of the Romans and what they thought about Caesar at that time. Because one of them, at one point, his father died, and there was this comment, and there was this debate in Rome of who was going to lead. They had one guy that was older and more experienced, but then you had the son of Caesar, who he was young but had a claim, but everybody was overlooking him. And so he saw this comment pass shortly after his father died, and he made up a story more or less and even got witnesses to this account saying that was his father ascending to his rightful place as God. And so there became this connection to Caesar and that person and deity. 
And so the Romans then ascribed deity, a godlike character, to the man that they referred to as Caesar. And, and that was not uncommon in world history. Kings and leaders throughout all of time in different places, people would ascribe a form of deity to that person and that role that they was ordained by the gods themselves, that so-and-so would be in charge of the nation and things of that nature. So, so for a Roman audience, for someone to come and make a claim that anyone other than Caesar is the son of God, off with their head. I mean, it's a serious claim. And so we, we don't want to take that lightly. When you read through the gospel of Mark, you've got to pay attention to those things. In fact, up until our passage, there's only three times that Mark even says that for being an emphasis. It's at the beginning. It's at Jesus' baptism, and it's at his transfiguration. That moment where he kind of reflected his holy divine character. Weird term, I know, but he was transfigured into a glimpse of his divine nature on earth. And, and only a few people got to see that. But the voice was, this is my son, you know, those sort of like the baptism scene. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So again... Keep that in your back pocket because it's going to become relevant by the time we get to our last verse today, okay? So let's walk through some of this stuff in a historical manner. Last week, we talked about the Garden of Gethsemane. Then we had the arrest happened after that, Jesus praying. And remember, from Mark's chapter, from his episode, I really liked what he said. Jesus says, rise, let's go, our accusers are here. It's like Jesus walked into trouble. They didn't run away or cower. Jesus is, you know, he's a man's man. And he's just like, nope, we're going to do this because this is what God has in mind. This is his plan. So this is what we're going to do. And you get the whole scene, right, of Peter. He swings his sword, cuts off Malchus's ear. Jesus is arrested. He goes before the Sanhedrin or the council, as Mark calls it, religious leaders in charge of temple law and rule, and they bring up all these charges against Jesus, mostly blasphemy. We can kill him on blasphemy is, is really the main thing. And throughout Jesus' life, they were looking for opportunities to charge him with blasphemy and kill them. But man, oh man, when Jesus said in these last days of his life that he would destroy the temple and in three days raise it up. That really set him on the edge. So you had Judas. He betrayed him. We've got all this going. He's arrested. Right at the end of chapter 14, you got the whole Peter denying Jesus episode at the little charcoal. In John's gospel, he calls it a charcoal fire, which then he later on uses the same term charcoal fire when Jesus is cooking breakfast for the disciples and he grabs Peter after breakfast and restores him to relationship and ministry. I love it when they make connections like that. It's fun. Anyways, the little teenage girl intimidates big bad fisherman with a sword. He runs off like a chicken after the rooster crows, you know, all that business. Jesus is delivered over to Pilate. Right before our passage, you have Jesus being flogged. And I know several of you are familiar with that idea. In Mark, in my translation of the gospel, it says, and having scourged Jesus, they delivered him to be crucified. And that whole event and that whole endeavor is quite brutal in and of itself. And it's not very often that people survived that and then got crucified. I remember one time in class in Bible college, I was sitting there, and we I had one semester of life of Christ that went over the last week of Jesus's life, his resurrection and ascension. It was the best class I've had in my entire life. 
No offense to any teacher that I've had in grade school or high school over the years, but that was a phenomenal class. We got to this section on talking about Jesus being flogged or scourged, and I remember the professor brought out a cat of nine tails that was a close replica of maybe what they would have used, and you've heard it described before, but a, a handle of some kind with all these strands coming off of it, 9, 10, 13, whatever, multiple strands coming off the end of it, and in those strands of leather or hide or whatever it may be were you know, put in there little lead balls, maybe glass or shards of bone, things like this. The, the idea of that was as they smacked somebody with it, they didn't snap them like a towel in the locker room after a football game. It wasn't like we're trying to sting in wealth. It was a raking motion. So it would be like take your garden rake and put it on someone's back and just run it across, you know, like that whole idea. But this thing would wrap around someone's body. You'd have them stretched out, laid out over some form of piece of wood or something. And they'd take turns, one off of each side, and just kind of crisscross the back and rake. So there was a lot of follow-through in that motion coming across with that. And the whole purpose was to tear someone to pieces, literally tear shreds off their body. Oftentimes, the insides would be torn open or somebody would lose an eye and a strand hitting them in the face. Things like this, it's gross and it's disgusting. It's violent and it's scary. And Jesus endured that. 39 times they would rake somebody open with this. And even if his innards weren't exposed, his back certainly was, possibly rib bones exposed and the spine Terrible, tremendously terrible event. You'd think that would be enough to make an example, but no. So we pick up here, which seems to carry a little bit of a theme in Mark through the rest of the crucifixion event in just this mocking of Jesus and this absolute shaming of this man. What has he done? What has he done to deserve this, right? I mean, he healed people. He fed people. He spent time with the unlovable. Maybe that's what got him in trouble, right? Spent a lot of time talking to religious people, oftentimes correcting their way of thinking and their heart issues. Maybe that's what got him in trouble. But they just absolutely put him to shame. And so verse 16 and the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. That seems to be a moment that gets passed up pretty quickly because as far as newsline type theology is concerned, it's not as standout as flogging and crucifixion. But to me, I don't know what it was about this time reading through this account that it started to hit me even more than it has in the past. Because I just can't get over the thought of this innocent man who came because he loves us, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And Jesus knows the weight of the mission that he is fulfilling in this moment. 
He is completely innocent. I mean, how many times have he been referred to as the spotless, blameless lamb of God? There's no fault to be within him. He is completely innocent and right. And like I shared last week from 1 Peter chapter 2, he was reviled and yet he reviled not. In other words, they did all of these things. They put the purple on it. Why purple? Purple's a sign of royalty. They make this crown of thorns. And you've seen those before, different examples of those. Some people get those tattooed on themselves. Some people have it as art. I remember, kind of lighten it up a little bit. I remember I was preaching at this church in Joplin, Missouri called Christ Church of Perseverance. I've talked about this before. And uh, what a hilarious name for a church. And don't take this the wrong way. But it was full of old people who just wouldn't die. <laughs> like, that sounds really terrible for me to say. I think all of them had cancer like three or four times. It was incredible, like the strength of these people. I've never been in a place where a name of a, of a building was more accurate than Christ Church of Perseverance here. It was incredible. Wonderful cast of characters, incredibly hospitable, wonderful place. Uh, to be a, a young Bible college student, fresh out of Bible college, to be preaching and getting some encouragement when I know the preaching wasn't very good. <laughs> but I remember one of the first times I walk in, and I'm walking in through the, the foyer area, kind of like out through here, right? And I'm coming around to go in through the sanctuary door, and something catches my eye on the wall. And I'm walking past, and I like stop, and I look, and it's this picture of Jesus. And you know, lots of old churches have had lots of pictures of Jesus, most of the time, they're like pastel colors, real pretty, airy, light, lovely Jesus. This one was the antithesis of all of those things. It was a realistic picture of a bloody-faced Jesus with a crown of thorns jammed on his head, blood on the crown of thorns running down his face. And I'm just like, well, this is very welcoming. On the top of that, it was a holographic picture. When you moved, his eyes would open and close and open and close. This is the creepiest thing I've ever seen in my entire life right there, welcoming people into this church. You know, but at the same time, I was like, I had to stare at it because of how realistic it was compared to everything else you see in every church. You know, and just to think of like this moment, like he's been torn to pieces already and he's brought into this other room and they dress him up like a king and they slam a crown of thorns on his head. They whack on that thing with some sort of stick. It says a reed, but some sort of stick. They're like whacking on this thing. They bow down to him, and they're like, Hail, King of the Jews. I mean, this is all sarcastic, rich sarcasm, just absolutely mocking this man. For what? For what? People started calling him king of the Jews. They've read these things. We've had the triumphal entry, which is typically celebrated on Palm Sunday. He came riding in like a king, like a prophet prophesied. You know, but honestly, this stuff is starting to turn out more like Psalm 22. I know you're familiar with Psalm 23, but you should read Psalm 22 and then Psalm 23. Because a lot of the words Jesus says in these final moments are straight out of Psalm 22, by the way. This prediction of a suffering shepherd who would later become the good shepherd. But anyways, they make fun of him. They absolutely lay into him, just despising him and shaming him. Verse 21. 
And they compel the passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Okay, let's pause right there for a minute. So this is during the busiest time of the year, right? We're talking Passover week. I mean, this is the apex celebration of all of Judaism. So not just Jews who are living in the city or even in the country, but Jews who are living in different regions throughout the known world are making pilgrimage trips here to this time and place for this reason. And all of a sudden, there's this hubbub and commotion, a really popular character who's done all these great things, is being set to parade out. And as Jesus, you get this picture in the old cartoons and old movies, right, of Jesus is being led out to be crucified, and he's carrying likely just the cross beam, not the entire cross. The cross beam alone was over 100 pounds, most people would say. That's a lot to carry when your back's not torn open by flogging. So he's struggling with it, can't quite muster the strength. Imagine that. And the Roman guards are like, well, here's this random guy. He looks strong enough. And they grab him, Simon of Cyrene. He's basically just there watching. Have you ever been in a crowd and found yourself wrapped up in the event more than you realized you would be? I remember that happened to a few of us in spring break, my junior year of high school down in Seaside when there were riots. That was really interesting. You're in the crowd, you're just observing, then all of a sudden you find yourself moving with the crowd. Like, where are we, what are we doing? We're just moving. It's mob mentality. We just kind of, and all of a sudden, you're just there as an innocent bystander, and you get yourself wrapped up in the commotion, and they grab him and forcibly make him take this cross beam on behalf of Jesus. Verse 22, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. All right, we'll pause again. Last week, we were talking about, and Mark includes this in chapter 14, Gethsemane. And we talked about how he probably started his suffering there in Gethsemane, not Golgotha. And there's a couple ideas by historians and scholars that there's a couple places that very well could be this Golgotha, this place of the school. Some people believe there's a site currently that's just outside the city walls. And there were cliffs there, and in the cliffs there was an image that looked like a skull. That's very possible. There's another site that's currently inside the city walls, but outside the old city walls. Either way, very important that somebody would be crucified outside of the city walls. There's no way the Jews would ever allow something like that to happen inside the city. So there's a couple places there that scholars kind of talk about back and forth. Either way, they're literally within like three quarters of a mile or something like that of each other. But the, the idea is there was a place that looked like a skull. And we have this picture in mind from art and from movies of like, on a hill far away, you know, sort of thing, like the song, like this sunset picture of dark red and three people on top of this knob far out. Probably not likely what it actually looked like. But anyways, they get to this place outside the city where that he would be crucified. In verse 23, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. i got to stop a lot on this because there's little things to bring up, right? But this myrrh was likely a, a pain-killing agent, something to kind of numb the pain a little bit, you know, a little bit of a drink, a little bit of a, a narcotic of some kind, but not very strong, just a little something-something. Verse 24, And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. 
It's always interesting when they say this. But again, I want to encourage you this week, go back and read Psalm 22. Psalm 22, I believe it's verse 18, says this. And they divided my garments among them and cast lots and those sorts of things. This idea of casting lots, what does that mean? That's a weird thing that we see now and then, mostly around this moment. You know, it's like this is some high-class memorabilia for the Roman centurions here. They're participating in this great moment in history where they are absolutely laying waste to a big-time character in stubborn Jerusalem. Look, the Romans don't like where they're at. This is a terrible assignment for them. These are stubborn people. They're very rebellious. They've had to deal with them multiple occasions. And these guys here know the history, and they're participating in another failed revolutionary, and they're getting their opportunity to put this guy, the king of the Jews, ha, 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 to death, and they are rolling dice or drawing straws, one of those types of things for... Who gets the seamless tunic? I'm going to put that one in those frames and, and I'm going to stick it up in my office, my home office, like, like a football helmet or jersey from an NFL game. That's going to be worth money someday. Just absolute shame. Just absolute shame and mockery of what they're doing to Jesus. Verse 25, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. By Jewish counting, we're looking at around 9 o'clock in the morning or so. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with them they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Maybe not like a little child, but. At the same time, we see today grown people acting like little children and how they mock and make fun of people they disagree with. It's not that far-fetched, I guess, to go, neener, neener, neener. Either way, you got all these people, and I don't know. I kind of imagine sometimes, maybe you do the same thing. You get into reading the Bible, and you just kind of start to imagine things that you can't know for sure. Like, I just wonder, like, are one of those people uh, someone who was fed on the day he fed 5,000? Are one of these people who are making fun of him now someone who followed him after that event? And in John, the Gospel of John, they're like begging for more. And he says, look, if you want to follow me, I'm not going to give you any more miraculous Lunchables. You've got to eat me. Like, that's a crazy thing for Jesus to say. And maybe at that point, they're like, put off by the guy. Like, you're not going to give me what I want? I'm out of here. Gee, that's familiar today, too. We love somebody until all of a sudden they can't serve our every last dying need. And then when they can't do what we want for them, we'll forget you, man. I'll go somewhere else where I can get what I want. Gee, that happens a lot still. But here they are just absolutely making fun of him. And I just, I don't know, I just, sometimes I imagine that some of the very people that were on the receiving end of his love and grace and mercy over the last three years have now turned, I don't, I can't read that out of the scripture. That's just me saying, like, maybe that's the case. 
Because I know I have those moments in my behavior that I turn my back on Jesus just like they might have. When I choose to sin, I'm basically saying, God, I don't trust or believe that your grace is strong enough for me or good enough for me. And I'm crucifying Jesus all over again. I'm cheapening what, what he accomplished here. So, anyways. Aha, you who destroyed the temple and rebuilt in three days. Verse 30. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So again, are you, are you picking up the, the, what's happening here? Shame, mockery, shame, mockery, shame, mockery. Everybody's abandoning him. Everybody's turning their backs on him. Oh, he's a liar. Oh, he couldn't do what he said. Oh, what a joke this guy is. He's, he's supposed to be Christ, the king. Look, at there he is. He's tacked up on that cross. I mean, he's, he's gone from flogging to having this robe put on him and people making fun of him and a crown of thorns slammed in his head. They rip that off and they march him down the street however long to this place and they crucify him. And we didn't even talk about what that looks like. It was a horrible, painful way of dying. The Romans were incredibly good at crucifying people. They were very familiar with crucifying people. This isn't a special death to Jesus. Jesus' death through crucifixion is special because of what he did there. But crucifixion was nothing special. It was, it was used to make a strong statement so for anybody who would defy the Roman Empire. Like, oh, you think you're something? We're going to hang you on posts up and down the road like a bunch of idiots. Look at that. There you are. So people can walk by and have a billboard of not to mess with the Roman Empire. That's what that was. And Jesus has a special attachment to his billboard. It says, King of the Jews, because we just got to get that jab in, right? You just got to keep poking the bear. Jesus, <laughs> King of the Jews, yeah, right. I mean, they put those nails right through, most likely right here in the wrist, you know, where it could actually hold somebody up. And that median nerve... The pain that would shoot up your arm. As he's at this pull-up-to-breathe stage and just, remember, his back's rubbed raw. Now he's rubbing it raw on this, just. And all the while, while he's suffering in this anguish and pain, people are going, ha, ha, loser. loser for our sake. He endured all that shame. So we wouldn't have to. In this moment, he became our sin and suffered the mockery of the evil one. So we wouldn't have to. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from noon to about three, 
And at the ninth hour, with a loud voice, Jesus cried, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, in this moment, you're like, what do you mean? Is he completely forsaken? Absolutely. Jesus was forsaken on the cross. That's what's crazy about this. I don't want to go as far and say that he didn't have any of his deity in that moment. I don't really believe that. But God turned his back on Jesus in this moment. Absolutely. Why? Because God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, we might know the righteousness of God. All sin for all time was there. And the person who Jesus was closest with, how often have we heard in the Gospels, the Father and I are one, the Father's in me and I am in the Father. That is true intimacy that we all aspire to In this moment, God the Father has to turn his back on his one and only Son so that the just penalty for our evil could be satisfied. Why have you forsaken me? And yet, some, verse 35, and some bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. And others would say, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered in a loud cry and breathed his last. And we know from the other gospels, he said things like, Father, forgive them for they know what to do. And things like, it is finished and in your hands I commend my spirit. And he breathed his last, right? And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. There was an earthquake that happened, graves split open, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. This is the curtain. It, would have, it was from the holy place to the holy of holies. I mean, we're talking about the, the highest level of access to God. And this was 30 by 60, 60 feet wide, 30 feet, about a hand width thick. I mean, you're not just having someone go in there with a pocket knife and tear this thing apart at this exact same moment that Jesus breathed his last. This was a miraculous event of God accomplishing what he set to accomplish, that from now on we would have intimate, clear access through Jesus because the job was finished. Because the job was finished. Jesus, the Son of God, accomplished what he set out to do. Verse 39, and then here this is really important. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. And it's really important for Mark to include this note here. Some others will include it a little bit differently. Was he calling him the Son of God or saying he is the Son of God? But for Mark, the emphasis being again, let's go back to the beginning note here. Pull that out of your pocket now. He's addressing Romans. And for him to say anything that this person is the Son of God is a big deal. And up until this point in his gospel, you've had Mark call him the Son of God, the author, And you've had God refer to him as the Son of God. But no human has said that Jesus is the Son of God until a Roman centurion at his death says it. Something about that death, something about that moment made an impact. There is no way a Roman centurion would ever say that about anyone other than Caesar. 
Except for in that moment, it was made abundantly clear. What just happened in front of his face was the real deal. And everything they've been arguing about and frustrated with over the last three years came to fulfillment right in front of his eyes. And he was able to make the proclamation, he was the son of God. And through his suffering and his sacrifice, Jesus was exalted as the son of God. And God didn't just abandon him to the grave. No, he rose him from the grave. And exalted him, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God now. So what does all this mean? Jesus suffering and sacrifice, exalting him as the Son of God. It means we have someone to stand before the judge on our behalf, to plead our case for us. Say, no, no, God, see that person there? They're covered in my blood. They're forgiven. They've been set free from the shame. I endured their shame on the cross. And we get a good welcome home instead. Terrible story. I hate that this had to happen like this, but I'm glad that he was faithful and obedient anyways. And through his humility, through his suffering and sacrifice, Jesus was exalted as the Son of God. The job was completed. And we have forgiveness of our sins because of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you so much for what Jesus did on our behalf. Father, there's so many times where I choose to do things I shouldn't do, that I know I shouldn't do, that the the sin, the temptation to sin is is appealing, Lord, and I, I bite. Father, I forget that in those moments, I'm making a mockery of your grace. Father, I ask that you would forgive me of those times. I know you're gracious enough to do that, and I ask, Lord, for even more grace, and I know you're faithful to, to continue to pour that out. Father, I know I'm not the only one that feels this way right here, right now. So, Father, forgive us. Forgive us of our sin. Shower us with your grace, Lord. And make us to be more like Jesus, a people who would pour ourselves out for the sake of others. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Please make sure to subscribe. And to find out more about Christian Church, please visit our website at cconline.cc or visit our YouTube page by searching Christian Church, Warrington, and Napa for more video content. Have a great day.